0: should join okay hi there it is
1: oh wow twinsies oh my god twinsies <laughs> oh my god who'da thunk it who'd have thunk this day would ever come
0: mute yourself on one of the th-
1: oh right 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 because right, right, i right, can right, hear right, right. okay how about now
0: okay that's less voice of god and more hava i like that
1: hava is the voice of god bitch hi hava
0: hi what are we both wearing right now
1: um, well, I'm wearing a tichel. I think you're wearing something to dry your hair. That's right. Could be considered a form of tichel. I'm
0: plopping right now for all you're your... You're what? Plopping. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Michael, I don't think that's appropriate to tell our listeners. I know, I know.
0: But the curly haired people out there know what plopping is. And that's what I'm doing. I see.
1: Well, I don't because I have heterosexual hair.
0: So tell me about why you're wearing a tichel. I'm tickled by your tichel. Is it because you're getting seer?
1: Um, no, it's not really because of that, although I do feel like that's maybe an element in the mix. Why am I wearing a tichel? Well, I started wearing a tichel because way back in the day, before I was ever married for the first time, I wanted to wear one because it felt very powerful to make a choice about who could see what parts of my body. It felt like a powerful experience of bodily autonomy to be like, this is for me. Everyone thinks my hair is for everyone to see that it is abnormal for it to be forbidden. So it is like a phenomenon to be like, I now claim this part of my body for myself.
0: So if you got it, don't flount it, principle.
1: <laughs> only only as a, as a method of personal empowerment after deep sexual trauma. I would not prescribe it for everyone, just that it was a powerful experience for me. But then I got married and I started to associate my tichol with marriage, which it is usually, in most communities, married Jewish women cover their hair and unmarried women have it out. It became associated with marriage for me. And so I stopped doing it because it was too weird and emotional. And now I'm sort of experimenting with whether I want to do it again, because I think it's really A regal and beautiful look which I like.
0: Will I still get to see your hair? It's so pretty.
1: That's an interesting question especially for us to talk about on this podcast. I love for us to talk about this. Um, We've actually had a listener question on a related issue but usually in Jewish world part of the principle right is that you're covering your hair around men. For instance if you were at the mikvah with all your female relatives then you would have your hair uncovered. So there's a whole gender... Issue that oh, goes into it, sweet. And-, and that's another reason. <laughs>
0: Michael, why did you like go through the difficult process of transitioning? And I'll be like, <laughs> bitch, I wanted to see Hava's hair; it's so damn pretty.
1: The say just asked, why did Michael transition? And Reb Chava says, merely to see the beauty of my hair.
0: Yeah, it's like half in the shade, you know, half in the sun, silver.
1: Fresh from the furnace, baby.
0: Covered in pomegranate seeds. It's like pretty dope. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so there's a whole interesting question of gender and how do we deal with issues of gender in Judaism with non-binary folks? There's a whole panoply of issues to be questioned there. So, you know, we'll just have to decide that. We'll have to negotiate that between ourselves. But the reason that I have a tichel on, especially and particularly today, I'm wearing a white tichel, which is quite rare. I only have one or two. I have like 50 scarves is because it's going to be Shabbat soon. So this is like in honor of Shabbat. In Kabbalah, white is very associated with Shabbat because it's like a bridal day. The reason I have a white tichel on right now is because I wanted to get fancy for Shabbat because it's hard to feel the Shabbat experience during quarantine. So I'm doing this technique of getting very dressed up for Shabbat to help it feel more Shabbatnik.
0: This is very new. This is, uh, well, that's not new, but it's very uh, renewed.
1: Yeah, exactly. I feel like a lot of my spiritual practices fell by the wayside with the misery of our previous home because I didn't feel comfortable being religious in that home.
0: Right, right.
1: So, it is sort of a new, like, me exploring getting back into that.
0: I haven't even asked you how you are yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is all part of it. I mean,
0: yeah, it is. But Like, how are you? You seem... Uh I can tell you how you are if, if you want to be explained to.
1: Um, You're a turtle right now. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm an adorable, very Jewish turtle. Look at these two bobby pins with pearls on them that I put on my tichol. like Oh, that yeah, cute? that is pretty and cute. And these are the earrings you gave me.
0: I know, I know. I think
1: they're very good Shabbat earrings because they're white with Mother of Pearl and they have grapes on them. So the white and the grapes both feel Shabbat appropriate.
0: It's definitely like screams Jewish woman, you know?
1: woman <laughs> how am I today Baruch Hashem. um I am really loving settling in to my new living situation it's really giving me a big sense of peace to know that I'll be here for the next eight to nine months at least that's really helping me feel like okay I've got some room to like recover and now Michael enough about me
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: stop prematurely uh what is what's the word when you do a strike like a george bush war crime Mm. preemptive stop preemptively deflecting oh and let's turn the conversation to you michael all right hi how are you uh
0: well listeners um first of all talmud hotline (laughs) 401-484-1619
1: don't forget to so think about that
0: uh, you know, this week I'm adjusting to being back in Massachusetts. I'm living in... Uh, I know, I know. I'm living Sorry, in I, I
1: know, know you don't want to be in Massachusetts either because Massachusetts is a, I don't even know what, a catonic void.
0: Yeah, I mean it's like hatred of small differences. I mean, Rhode Island is marginally better. New New England is awful. Let's just
1: right, put that out right. there. It's an but awful in a way, place. But we love it.
0: We do. We love it. We do. I love well, it.
1: I love it because I'm from the South. Anyway, don't let me interrupt your share.
0: Um, share, Mary. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I'm living, you know, in central MA, living with Sam. He's inducing existential crises in me every day with like philosophical diatribes about like the nature of being, which you know I love. And sometimes we unleash that on you listeners. And we That's will Sam
1: Biagetti, friend of the show.
0: Sam Biagetti, friend of everyone ontology. Favorite gay historian. Visited my parents, they're in also in Central MA. Had Thanksgiving with them, you know, ate some I food. hope you were safe. Uh very safe everyone okay, is great. super safe great, 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 great include safe. that
1: in the podcast i don't want people to cancel us oh, no. the one thing i would like to not get canceled for <laughs> is coronavirus safety
0: yeah yeah that's true no the, everyone's super safe because uh my parents visit my grandparents and you know have to get them food and whatnot i'm, I'm feeling good it's like week two or something like that of uh hrt that feels nice
1: Ooh. i
0: know i know Feels pretty cool.
1: More than ever today, I feel like we're like Talmudic shock jockeys.
0: A little bit, yeah. and I
1: really wish I had like a panel of sound bites that I could press on, and there would be like a little voiceover that's like, it makes like a sexy noise, and like a laugh track, a clap track, a fart noise.
0: Yeah, it's like I want to be a conservative radio station, except
1: yeah, you know. we're a conservative Judaism radio station.
0: I'm happy. I got some money saved up. I can survive. <sighs> You know, I'm just like, oh I, oh, I took a bath. I've been taking baths whenever I see my folks. So I took a bath this morning because I stayed the night and uh mm-hmm. whew, very relaxing.
1: Hell yeah. Yeah. Are you happy to be here recording? Does it fill you with joie de vivre?
0: It does. It really, it does. I feel a little boring right now.
1: No. I'm Michael, not boring. The listeners love you. What? Listeners, if you love Michael, let them know. Because I know you do. Aside from the show, I just wanted to say if you in your um, gathering of trash and antiques that you do Mm -hmm. ever encounter like cute tea sets, that's something I'd really be interested in. Okay. I like made this cup of tea. I needed to wait for it to steep before I put milk in it. But I also needed to go get on the computer so that we could talk to each other. And I was like, if only I had a little cream pitcher to put my cream in.
0: Would you accept a cream pitcher?
1: Yes, I would accept a cream pitcher. You
0: would accept a cream pitcher. Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that describes my ideal partner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are the only person under 75 who actually wants a, a literal cream pitcher great like no one no one no millennial no one no no gen yeah, Xer.
1: I frequently need one because i make tea but i don't want to hang out in the kitchen with my tea just waiting for it to be done steeping so i can put cream in it
0: i, I can get you like 20 creamers
1: Okay. Well, get me the most beautiful one.
0: Okay. Okay. You uh, give creamer. me a
1: selection of the most beautiful ones, um, like sort of a Purim situation, and like parade them before me. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Sure. 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 And you spend one night with each of them.
1: Exactly. Let's talk about some Talmud, huh?
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's do okay, it. Okay.
1: Today I am taking us back to Aravine DAF thirteen B. So we've been on this DAF before. When we had that episode about whether it would be better for man to have been created or not in episodes 16 and 17, Talmud and the Absurds, parts one and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you haven't heard those, go back and give the listen. They're great. Now we're going to talk about some superficially unrelated stuff. Okay. Aruveen is a tractate mostly about different like laws of carrying things on Shabbat and different kinds of truly like property zoning <laughs> is a big factor. This
0: is like the first. Uh, so section? it's the second tractate of the Talmud, second tractate of Talmud. Um,
1: even though that's like a false concept of Talmud because it's not a codex in that sense.
0: It is an Ouroboros. It is a tangled ball of Ouroboros.
1: Ever-shifting fractal Ouroboros of wisdom and foolishness. We are back on page Erevin 13b. I'm going to dive right in it. Rabbi Akha Barchanina. So it's, this is a saying of Rabbi Akha Barchanina. Galoi mi ha'olam. So it's revealed and known before the one who spoke and created the world. The reason I'm translating on the fly is because it's cool, because Rabbi Akha Barchanina chooses that particular title to refer to Hashem, because they could have said all kinds of different things. Okay, so it's revealed and known before the one who spoke and created the world. That there was no one in his generation who was like Rebbe Mayer. So in the generation of Rebbe Mayer, there was no one else who was as fucking iconic. I just want to say a few things about Rebbe Mayer is just that he's a super cool character in the Talmud. He's from the Mishnaic era, and one really cool thing about him is that mythologically, his father was a descendant of Nero, and then Ooh. his family converted to Judaism. It sort of like becomes a whole point about finding sparks of holiness in unlikely places, you know, that he's descended from a famous hater of the Jews, and mm. then he becomes this incredibly iconic sage. So, there was no one in his generation who was like him. And why isn't the halacha fixed like him? So, the question here is, if he was so awesome, why don't we actually follow the halacha as Rebbe Mayer taught it? If he was so freaking cool.
0: Okay, all right, all right.
1: Here's the answer. Shalo Yahlu the reason that the halacha is not like him, and this is a fairly literal translation, is because his colleagues could not stand on the end of his mind or his intellect. Whoa. Yeah, which I just think is a really cool phrase. Whoa. I think it's a cool way to talk about, like, sort of a character, like, stereotypically we say, like, Albert Einstein, like, failed in school and then became a brilliant mathematician. It's just, like, one of those people who's so brilliant that no one gets them. <laughs>
0: whoa yeah so it's kind of like hey guys rabbi mayor if we could have extracted the version of halakha halakha if we could extract (laughs) halakha out of his head then we would not be having so many debates like it would be settled (laughs) is that kind of the implication
1: well i'm not sure based on the sentence that comes next that's going to complicate all the ways we think of this. Right, okay. So let me just get it on the page for us. He would say concerning the impure that it was pure and provide arguments for it. And he would say, concerning the pure, that it was impure, and provide arguments for it.
0: Oh, so he was a troll. He was a big old, big old troll.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, that is a subject of some debate. And before we go any further, I just want to give a big shout-out to my chavruta Annie, who I've been studying this stuff with her for like, gosh, three months now. So, big shout-out, all my thinking on this, very influenced by you, could not have this insight without you. There's a lot of ways to think about it. One way is that the reason they couldn't stand on the end of his mind is because they couldn't tell which of his arguments were sincere and which of his arguments were for the purpose of illustrating his rhetorical buff muscles. So, that's one possibility, right? You can't fix the halakha in the manner of someone who you don't understand what their sincere position is.
0: Right, right. You just have a sense that they're smarter than you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which I imagine we've all perhaps known someone like that who is smarter than us, but we can't necessarily live their lifestyle. Just because they've got something figured out doesn't mean we can follow their elaborate and advanced ways of being.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And that's sort of the viewpoint that Rashi takes here is the issue was that they couldn't tell what his true, sincere halachic positions were. Which is really, I mean, this raises a whole interesting question about the difference between rhetoric and philosophy and Halakha, right? Philosophy is concerned with ontology, with like an ultimate question of truth, and rhetoric is not necessarily so. And it sounds like Rabbi Mayer was a super powerful rhetorician. <laughs> but the Talmud um,
0: does contain both rhetoric and uh, law, Right. Uh, both uh, both halakha and and rhetoric. We've talked about that there are passages in the Talmud that many people argue are just supposed to use it as a pedagogical tool. So is there more Rabbi Meir? Is there Rabbi Meir in the Talmud?
1: Oh, yeah. Rabbi Meir is, is all throughout the Talmud. Quoted many, many times. Uh, mm. And and in fact, whenever there's an unattributed statement of the Tannaitic era, we assume it's from Rabbi Meir. So that's, I would say, pretty high. Honor and a pretty high rate of quotes. But really, the question of whether there is a truly ordered philosophical set of content in the Talmud is a subject of some debate. I mean, Maimonides really didn't feel like there was, and that's part of the reason he set about creating his code of Torah laws, because he was trying to sort of transform the Talmud. As, as I understand it, and this is just my limited understanding, Maimonides sort of felt that the Talmud just needed to be sort of like composted into the soil of Halacha, Like it's the source of our Halacha. but you don't need to learn the Talmud, you just need to learn the law because the law is the actual sense. That is not the only point of view. It's not my point of view, in fact. But just to say, there's significant historical debate about the ontological content of the Talmud. Mm-hmm. I think this is a super interesting passage. It sort of makes me think about, like, the qualities of a good teacher. Like, the quality of a good teacher is not necessarily to just be the smartest person in the room, you know? Because it's clear that whatever room Ruby Mayer was in, he was the smartest person in it. And yet, we couldn't follow after him because his knowledge was not packaged in a way that was accessible to us.
0: You're saying that Rabbi Mayer probably wasn't the best teacher.
1: It's a suspicion of mine based off this passage. We're going to do two more episodes on related questions to this anecdote about Rabbi Mayer.
0: I like it. It's cute. It, it, it makes me feel warm and fuzzy for some reason. I like it.
1: Yeah. I like to look back on Rabbi Mayer. I think Rabbi Mayer is sort of a I don't know, a cool character, a character I think about often and hope to imitate in some ways and then to not imitate in some ways.
0: They're like, he's important, but we need more than just him, which is neat.
1: Right. The Bay Midrash also needs carpenters. Yeah. You know, we can't just have advanced theoretical halachists.
0: And as someone who wants to be swaddled in the blanket of community uh, constantly, like (laughs) I do, I like that. I like that. Mm
1: -hmm. It's nice. To raise another question before we totally wrap this up is the text says that his colleagues, uh, his the literally like his friends, his compatriots of his time, couldn't stand on the end of his mind. Which raises the question of can we or could someone? Maybe the issue isn't Rabbi Mayer. Maybe the issue is that the people of his time just didn't have the perspective to appreciate him. Whoa. Yeah. Literally before his time. Huh. Huh. Yeah, too cool for school, some might say.
0: I'm sorry, I'm, I'm so quiet. I just like, I'm kind of just like taking it in. And
1: Yeah, yeah, please do. There's a reason I've been studying this one page for so long. I've been thinking a lot about the nature of knowledge and the nature of Talmud, right? Because part of what's at issue here is what do we consider to be of importance in the Talmud? Do we need to figure out brass tacks? Is this Tahor or Tame? Is this chicken kosher or not? or is there some quality of talmud beyond the taklas beyond the brass text that Rebbe mayer was tapped into that we should be searching for something beyond the particulars.
0: Could you be projecting this on- onto Rabbi Meir? I could imagine an ortho being like, what this actually says is that Rabbi Mayer, like knew all the answers to all those brass tacks questions and could argue them. Maybe he was just really good at brass tacks. Like,
1: it's clear that he wasn't good at brass tax because the halakha wasn't fixed like him. And also, I think it's pretty, it's a normative way to think about this to say that the issue was no one could understand what he really meant because that's Rashi's explanation. So I'm not pulling that out of thin air, you know?
0: Okay, okay.
1: I'm pulling that out of the Rashi zone.
0: But did Rashi mean no one could understand his arguments about how he got to the answers? Like, you can understand the answer. Like, it's kosher.
1: Well, let's see. Let me pull up the Rashi. Come here, Rashi. I get a dictionary involved in this. Mmm... Yeah, I think Rashi is saying here that it's not that he didn't show his work. It's that no one could tell what he was sincere about, like what, okay, he's, okay. what he sincerely thought the Halakha should be, if he even had such an opinion.
0: The reason he's on a pedestal is not because he's good at the brass tacks. It's because he's just good at arguments. He's just good at some, yes, something else. exactly.
1: Exactly. Okay, yeah. Which is a... A value that pops up here and there throughout Talmudic time is that we should ideally be able to pick any position of the sages of the Talmud and inhabit it fully as if it were our own, to be able to fully understand and argue from that position
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that as a
1: necessary sense. part of understanding
0: I, I value that as a general skill in life, to be able to yes. see why someone else would think something totally different. Mm-hmm.
1: Surprisingly hard skill to cultivate.
0: It is. It is very hard. But all knowledge is the same, and all knowledge leads to feeling interconnected to the divine. So I'm just going to say it's knowledge that makes you feel more connected to the divine, bitches.
1: Mm-hmm. Baruch Hashem. I think we should save our further questions for next time. I think our eyes, hopefully, will be further illuminated. Listeners, send us questions, comments, advice questions for a new advice podcast at chaihowareyou.com, where you can send us your questions anonymously. That's right. Or call us on the Talmud Hotline, which we mentioned earlier in the show. Tweet at us. I'm at chaihowareyou, and Michael is at miss underscore figured. We would love to talk to you.
0: We would. We really would. It'd be nice.
1: Okay. Sending you all lots of love and blessings in Shavua Tov.
0: Shavuot Tov.